This podcast covers a murder that occurred in Arcadia, Florida in 1980. As always, everyone is innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. So I did my share of fishing as a kid. We had a boat, a couple boats actually, and when we were young, we went boating almost every weekend. But we were not live-off-the-land or sea or creek or lake types of boaters. For my family, catching a fish and eating it was more of a novelty than a way of life. And we certainly didn't fish to fill our freezer. As an adult, though, when we lived in Michigan, I got a different perspective because we lived on a farm. It was a rural area where everybody hunted and fished. By the time we left, my husband had learned to hunt, and both he and my oldest son had gotten pretty good at field dressing and butchering deer. For my part, I sat up in a tree stand a few times, but mainly I learned to cook venison, and I gotta tell you, that is some good eating. There is not a cut of steak out there that can match a well-cooked backstrap wrapped in bacon and then cooked on the grill. The folks out in Arcadia, Florida, at least the folks we're going to meet this season, fished and hunted to eat. It wasn't a novelty to them. But that kind of fishing and hunting, well, it takes some effort. Effort, like stopping early in the morning before a 10- or 12-hour shift, to drop some trout lines, or trot lines, as I've learned that they're called. Now, Jenny, where did you learn this, you might ask. Well, I learned about it on YouTube, as you can learn pretty much anything at this point. I would not be surprised, frankly, if there was a channel dedicated to removing your own appendix out there somewhere. We're not going to go very fast and furious. We ain't in no big hurry, don't reckon. You usually want to place these kind of low, because if somebody finds it, they may decide they want to play with it and take your fish. If you can get on the down current side of your fishing the stream's got current in, it's got to get in that kind of eddy below a gravel bar. It, that seems to hold fish more. Other than that, there's really no trick to it. You need a rock or brick to weight down the far end, especially if you're in river current. And boop. You probably see it disappearing. There it goes. Down, down, down to the bottom. I just bait mine with the minnows. I just Spread some minnows up on there and pick a spot that's about. You can buy pre-made bait balls, but they're about the six dollars, five to six dollars a pack, and these chicken livers were a dollar and forty cents. You might pick up a turtle every once in a while, something like that, but it's usually just catfish. Biggest fish I ever caught, I guess I'm gonna say it was probably about the 40 pound maybe. Well, there is some work involved, putting it out and baiting it up, but your main beam ought to be pretty stout because drift and stuff gets in it, and you want to make sure you got the weights on it, keep it down low. So yeah, lots of videos of guys and gals setting out and checking their trot lines. There's even this one guy, and he takes a different pretty uh, female out to check his lines each time he goes. And I can only imagine he is monetizing the hell out of that channel given that she's the one bent over with her backside to the camera, pulling up the lines to check for fish. Frankly, it is brilliant. Much more exciting than watching a makeup tutorial. Highly recommend. The channel, by the way, is called Hook, Line, and Chill. 
I have no affiliation with them, but I have spent more time than I care to admit watching them yank catfish out of the river in Kentucky. So if you're bored one day, you can give it a view. But as a quick explainer for you guys, if you don't know, setting out trout or trot lines is essentially a bait and wait situation. You've got a long length of heavy fishing line, okay, with baited hooks that are attached at something like three foot intervals, and those hooks hang from a short length of line that is tied to the main line. I saw everything from chicken liver to small fish like perch to live bait being used, and everything from catfish to gar, which are completely ugly and horrifying looking, to bluegill and turtles being dragged up on those lines. I learned that bass and catfish like deep holes around tree snags where the flow is strong. So what you do is you adjust the lines that your hooks are on hanging from that larger line, making sure to know the depth of the water that you're fishing because you want that bait low enough to attract these low swimming fish. I can absolutely see the allure. I was mesmerized. It made me want to get out there on one of those John boats and start tugging on some line myself. Our group of Arcadians that this story will follow, well, they were a tight-knit group that did things like fishing and hog hunting and the sorts of things that you and I might not be familiar with. But tight-knit as it applies to these folks might also be, well, let's just say tight enough that it could lead to murder. What did you hear happen? What do you know happened? that Merritt was found floating in Horse Creek and he had been bludgeoned to death and that he had was wrapped in his bed sheets and his uh, blanket and thrown in the creek, naked. And then we heard, yeah, I Yeah, then one time I was told he was naked one time, one time he had on his underwear, but Merritt slept in his drawers. Because yeah. every time I was over there and he had gotten up, he'd always had on uh, briefs. What kind of housekeeper is Connie? Disarray. All the time. Nothing, nothing. She tried to keep it. She never took her butt home. You know what I'm saying? People were worried she'd be gone. It wasn't, it wasn't filthy like dirty, a lot of dirty dishes with maggots in them and shit like that, like I know you've seen, but it wasn't as clean as it could have been. Just disarray. Disarray, like nothing was put up and... But I don't think he cared. I mean, he was the type, as long as she's happy, I'm happy. He didn't put... For her and Right, he didn't, right, he didn't put no pressure on her that he would have rather come in and helped her do the dishes than to have made her unhappy. He wasn't, he wasn't a bitcher, other than a beat. Or I never saw him be really nasty. I've never seen him be nasty to nobody. Never. He was always everybody's friend. He was. And when he got to drinking, that's why with the drinking bit, whenever he got to drinking, uh, and he drank beer, never saw him drink anything but beer. I never drink beer. And when he drank his beer, he'd get very loving and mellow type, you know, he, ne he wasn't obnoxious at all. 
that's what I saw. I don't know what he got like when he was home, but he must have went straight home and just passed out. I've never heard of him getting drunk and being abusive. I was not with him the few days or around him the few days before it happened. It's obvious, I guess, that Pete Merritt had some problems. Oh, yeah, they fall like cats and dogs. Pete is Connie's brother, and the whole neighborhood knew how much Pete and Merritt disliked each other. They did not get along, to the point of multiple physical altercations between the two. Other than Pete, was there anybody else that Merritt would have had a problem with? No. I never knew Merritt had a problem with nobody. No. Other than just him and Pete couldn't get along. I mean, he tried to get Pete to work. He wouldn't work. Lay up at the house all the time, and then he'd go steal he stuff. He'd steal his stuff. After Merritt worked off with some bitch, steal Pete would steal his stuff out of the barn, you know, and go pond it or go sell it. And then he'd beat him down. He'd beat him down, and then he'd go do it again. And he got so upset about it because he kept doing the same thing over and over again. And and he was such a druggie. And he would just go from neighbor to neighbor to neighbor stealing. And he was running with Chucky Bennett, and he was running with all the scubs that that's all they did. And when Chucky and them was real young, that's all they did, take these cut-down cars. And while the people, everybody in this whole neighborhood was working somewhere besides here, there was nobody home during the day. And they come home, they never had nothing. Somebody be broken to everything they got and stolen and pawned it. And Merrick tried to play daddy to people. But Connie, no, I don't believe that's why he, he merits dead. I think it's for because I think that it was over Connie and her relationships, and they both of them got tired of it. They wanted him out of the way. Because mm-hmm. he was very much a family man. He was. He, he thought there wasn't nothing like his family. What about Merritt's hunting habits? Would he do just hunting? Any night, or did he just wait and go on the weekend? I don't know. Everybody went every night. Yeah. I mean, back then, it wasn't... It was everybody every I night. did the same thing, but I did it with a different group of people. It was everybody every night. I did night with a boy from Port Charlotte and another guy here in town. We used to take our airboats and go to the river. That's what Ronnie can tell you is the hunting habits because how they did it. They used to go south the road and hunt. I didn't do that. Well, the area he was killed, I understand, is like an old quarry spot. That wasn't necessarily someplace you went. ain't a hunting. That would be someplace you could picnic. They coached. They went down Lily Road. They did the same thing they're doing today. They didn't hunt. Same thing they're doing right now today is exactly the same thing. The CMI owns it today, where back then they run from the cattlemen. It's the only difference. And then, of course, Gophers wasn't uh, illegal then, and they'd go out and get 50 of them and have a big gopher fry or sell shell turtle or... Well, I remember one time that they went and stole somebody's Muscovy ducks. They built <laughs> I never forget, Merritt was in on that too. 
He cleaned the old ducks and then built them a smokehouse and we smoked them and he said we all like to die from food poisoning. Have you ever smoked a Muscovy duck with all that grease coming out? <laughs> to this day I can't stand smoked meat. I like to have died. I thought if the good Lord would come right now and take me, I'd be out of my misery. <laughs> that was a laugh. But they did. Somebody down the road had a whole pen of Muscovy ducks and they started their water. They stuck them in hot water and plucked all the feathers off. Right in Ronnie's yard. <laughs> Oh my God, can we please take a minute to appreciate that scene? First, you guys have seen Muskogee ducks, I'm sure. They're black and white with pink or red wattles, although there are other color variations. The Muskogee duck is the only domesticated duck that's not descended from mallards, and they aren't really water ducks like other ducks. They have claws that are larger than the average duck and a big extra claw on the hind of their feet because they're actually perching birds, so they prefer to roost. That big claw helps them to grip a roosting site, and I'm told that they like to roost in lofts and trees. So here we are already in Stephen King territory with clawed ducks hanging in trees. But perhaps the most terrifying is the fact that they don't quack. They sort of burble and hiss. They're supposed to be good eaten when they're young, more like veal than duck. But the older ones, their flesh apparently gets stringy and they allegedly taste and smell musky or gamey. So just picture it, we've got a couple neighbors stealing a gaggle of ducks from some poor unsuspecting duck owner, which means they've somehow managed to corral and cage a lot of them. Transport the hissing ducks to Ronnie Dryman's yard where he, and others, I presume, proceed to dunk each one in hot water, pluck them clean, and then cook their burgled ducks. Sweet, heavenly Jesus, the absolute visual carnage of that scene. Plucked feathers everywhere, not to mention whatever noises that the Muscovy ducks make when they know their end is nigh. Aren't you guys wondering how they season them? Or is it just me picturing them slathering the ducks with barbecue sauce? It was probably great for about, like, 20 minutes. People brought side dishes, maybe. They're sitting around the picnic tables, the whole neighborhood happy with their pile of barbecued duck. Everybody's digging in. Smiles on their faces, glistening with grease under the hot Florida sun. But those Muscovy ducks had the last laugh. Perhaps because they hadn't been cooked long enough, who knows? It sounds like the whole neighborhood spent the night either hugging the bowl or sitting on it. I don't know about you guys, but I already like these people. And I want to know more about them. What was the attraction out here, just getting away from the city? You, know, you could buy five acres of land for $100 and like $50. Okay, $100 down to $78 a month for this five.
and have cookouts in the afternoon to have something to eat. We fed everybody like we were in the ration line. It was that bad. When you went to town, you went around and took a list so you could save gas. How bad it was in the 70s in Arcadia. I was a little fella at that time, so <laughs> my recollections of <laughs> probably start good about 71. And that's, and that's yeah, well, it was about 74, 75 before it picked up, but I was in the middle of all of that over there. On the day he was murdered in October of 1980, Merritt Ives Wheeler III spent about 11 hours out in the hot Florida sun pouring concrete. At the time, he worked for Perry Hoff Construction, and his boss, the aforementioned Perry Hoff, last saw Merritt around 6.30 that evening when he left work for the day. But he spoke with him later that night around 8.30 to let him know that they'd be starting the next morning at 6.30. Construction jobs in Florida, well, they test the metal of a man, and 36-year-old Merritt Wheeler was a rock, big and tough, who cared about his family and enjoyed outside endeavors like hunting. Here's Perry Hoff, his former employer. He was about 6'1", 6'2". Stout. He was, he was slender, but he was muscular. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't... Uh, fat in no way. He was very muscular. Um, he was built like a karate guy, just all muscle, you know, because he, he worked. And he wasn't, you know, there was no fat on his body at all. One year, I, I decided to have all the guys come out to have a little barbecue uh, a few weeks before Christmas. And uh, I had mentioned to everybody to come outside and we'll have a cookout. And the next day, come to me and told me, he said, well, we'll I'll, I'll get the guys and we'll bring all the food and we'll do the cooking. You know, you don't have to do anything. It's going to be our gift to you. And uh, I thought that was awful nice of him. You know, so he got it, all the guys together and they come out here and we had a little barbecue. And, and he was really kind of proud of himself, of, you know, setting it all up. But that shows something about his integrity. Oh, he was, yeah, he was a really, really good-hearted person. He wouldn't hurt a A friend of Merritt's named David, David Perry, not to be confused with Perry Hoff, his employer, saw Merritt Wheeler the night before he was murdered around 9.15. He'd gone over to Merritt's house earlier on that same evening, asking about a job. He wanted Merritt to try and get him one. While he was there, another friend named Bill Sane stopped by to ask Merritt if he wanted to go hunting with him that night. Merritt declined, which is something he didn't often do when it came to hunting. But that night he said he wasn't feeling good. When Merritt went over to David's house sometime after nine that night to pick up some tools for work the next day, he told his friend that he had spoken to his boss on the phone and he got him a job. In fact, he could start the next day. So the two men arranged to meet at the construction office in Port Charlotte, Florida, the following morning. Before he left, David gave Merritt two soft-shell turtles as payment for helping him get the job. The next morning, David got up extra early because he wanted to go set trout lines out at the Fort Ogden Trestle on the way to work. He had enlisted Frankie and Willie Lamar, father and son, to help him set the lines. When Merritt's friend David Perry arrived at the construction company that morning at around 8.30, 
The secretary, Dorothy, asked him what he was doing there. He said Merritt had got him a job, and then asked, isn't he here yet? She said no, he had not shown up for work yet, and that was odd for him because he was usually very punctual. Merritt's wife Connie had even called looking for him, just a few minutes before David walked in the door. As they stood there talking about it in the office, Connie Wheeler called again, and the secretary handed David the phone. Merritt went out hunting last night, Connie Wheeler told him, but he never came back. There was some talk about whether she should call the police, but David told her to hold off. The boss said that he didn't need him that day, so what he would do is he would head back down King's Highway, where they usually hunted, and see if he could spot Merritt or his truck. David left the office around 8.40 or 8.45, driving slowly down King's Highway, which eventually turns into County Road 769. When he got to the Horse Creek Bridge, David stopped on the north side where they usually hunted, but he couldn't find Merritt's truck. As David started across the Horse Creek Bridge to the south side, he spotted Merritt's truck parked down near the water, and he knew it was Merritt's truck because he could see the concrete tools that he had picked up the previous night. David followed the bridge to the end and then pulled off onto the little dirt road or two-track that winds through the woods and leads back down toward the water, where the truck sat. David parked his vehicle at the top of the hill and he got out. It was then that he noticed the driver's door of Merritt's truck was open. He took a few steps down toward the truck and noticed a white object in the water, quickly realizing that it was a body. David turned around and went back to his truck, leaving the same way that he'd entered, then drove to the local farm store at the intersection of highways 70 and 72 to call the sheriff's department from the payphone outside. That call came in at 9.13 a.m. I think he's dead, he told them. Connie Wheeler had told both David and his employer that her husband had gone hunting the night before and never came back. But once David saw Merritt's truck, he immediately took issue with her story. Here is an interview done with that friend, David Perry, in 2006, some 26 years after the murder. And I need to preface this by telling you that, for some reason unknown to me, when I received the documents and audio related to Merritt Wheeler's death, whoever prepared the file redacted Merritt's name throughout. I'm not sure why, and there's no legal basis to do so. In fact, I've never had that happen before or since. My guess is that the person who prepared it wasn't familiar with what did and did not need to be redacted. So in this interview, when you hear the beep, and in most of the interviews, unless I jump in to clarify, you can assume that what they're beeping out represents Merritt's name. Here's David Perry. Uh, I understand that you found... Yes, ma'am, I did. Okay, can you describe the circumstances of what happened and how you found him? Okay, he came and... Uh wanted me to go and start to work with him so the night before and uh so i went to work that morning and was going to meet him down there and he didn't show up okay so uh i told uh that secretary i said i'm gonna go back and see if i can find him okay but before that now i can tell you connie did call down there and ask me if okay. was there okay and uh so I told that girl that I was going to go back looking for him because she said he went hunt. Okay. So I know where we went hunting all the time. So that's where I went to 
And I dropped in there and that's where I found his body in the so then I went and called the sheriff's department and got them out there. And uh, uh, the night before uh, you found, did you? I know it's 25 years ago. It's kind of hard to remember a lot of this. Do you remember if you went over to the house that evening? Yes. Uh, do you remember what for? To uh, get him to get me a job. Trying to get a job. Okay. Do you remember if there was anybody else over there that night? No. No. Okay. Do you remember seeing Bill Sane, a friend of Bill Sane came over when me and stand there talking. Okay. I want to know if he was wanting to go hunting that night. Okay. He says no. Alright. He said, I'm tired and he said I got a lot of concrete for tomorrow. So. Okay. So he doesn't want to go hunting with Bill Sane and you talk to him about getting a job and then you go home. Then I go home. Okay. And then he He came oh. over around about nine, nine thirty somewhere. Okay. Now. And uh, got his tools and told me that he's ready to, uh, he wants me to go to work that would next morning with him. So, so from the time you spoke to him about getting a job and him coming over, he had got you one? He called Perry and got me a oh, okay. job. Okay. So your arrangements were to go down, meet him down there the next morning they, to go to work? At the office. Okay. What time were you supposed to be there? Do you remember? Uh, it was around 7.30. He said he had to be there by 7.30. Okay. And... Did you have something else you needed to do that morning? Oh yeah, I carried, uh, had my trot lines to run, but mm -hmm. I carried, uh, what's your name? Was it the ones, the one that Connie Frank, used today? Okay, yeah. Frank and his dad? His dad. Willie. Willie. Frank and Willie. And I carried them down there and dropped them off at the boat and uh, told to ask them if they'd run the trot lines. Okay. Me. So yeah, they did. Okay. So that's when I went to the office. So, um, you typically would have run the trout lines yourself, is that correct? If I hadn't got this other job. Yeah. When did you ask Willie and Frank to do it for you? Uh, I went by there that morning. Mm -hmm. 7 o'clock or yeah. 6 o'clock no, or my gosh. I had to be down there at 7.30 so it, I had probably around 6, 6.30. You went to Willie's house? Willie's house. To see if they'd do it for you? Yeah. Was that something you had done before? Did you know that they probably would do that for you or? No, uh, Willie had told me that any time I wanted to run them, that he'd run them with oh, me. Oh, okay. Okay. So, I told him that he got me a job, and I was going to work for him full of concrete, mm -hmm. and see if he wanted to go down and run them trot lines. I was going to let him have all the fish he's got. Mm -hmm. So, that's when he got that Frankie up and told him, come on, because mm -hmm. we're going to go run them trot lines. Do you remember if Frank was already awake or not? Uh, I don't think he would. I think he was asleep. Okay. But he did, he did in the back room one of the other. Okay. So Willie got Frank up, loaded loaded up in your truck, and you took him down and dropped him yeah. off. It was at the Fort Ogden Trussell? Yeah. Fort for them Ogden. to run your trot line yeah. for you. And then you drove to Port Charlotte to go to work. Yeah. And when you got down there, uh, had not shown Showing up for up. work. Connie called Call and, and won't know if uh, showed he up. showed up. Okay. And that's when you said you'd backtrack and and look where y'all used to go hunting. You're nodding your head, it's the audio. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't pick up head nods. <laughs> okay. I'm repeating, I'm trying to repeat everything that you told me and make sure I get it right. So if I don't have it right, you go ahead and correct me, okay? Um, had you hunted with before at that place? Yep. Four or five times. Okay. What would he normally do when he went hunting there? Well, all we do is 
we tie the dog, mm-hmm. and that's where where we found found where I found him. One where we parked at. We parked on this side of the bridge. The south side. On the south side. Pulled off there and went into the woods because we wasn't supposed to go back in there hunt. Mm-hmm. So we'd hide the truck. On the south side. Yeah. On the north side, you can't hide it. You well. can't hide it nowhere. Okay. So uh, I looked in there. Mm-hmm. So when I went over the bridge, I seen a white truck sitting off in there. Yeah. Okay. So that's when I went in there. And I got over to the bank, and I seen a body laying there, and I seen it was up because it had my had his twos on the back of it. Mm-hmm. That's when I went and called Sheriff Park. Okay, that makes a lot more sense now. You check side because that's where you had gone several times in the past hunting with parked yes. truck hidden mm-hmm. to go poaching, and you. We're leaving where you hadn't found the truck. We're leaving, getting back on the highway when you glanced and saw saw it through the saw trees. Saw the truck over, over, off the bridge, up the water. There. So even with this scenario that was given 25 years ago by Connie about going hunting, did you know him to ever park his truck on the side of the bridge? No. Nope. No. Nope. It's always hidden on the south side. Did did typically poach or did he ever have permission to hunt anywhere uh mostly we just poached. poached when poached did he take great pains to hide his truck or did he leave it parked out in the open no he hid it he hid it and this was not hidden is that correct no, it wasn't hidden okay just pulled off into the water just about right off in off a bank and i know wouldn't pull off that bank why would he pull off in there knowing he can't get back out why would he go hunting in his underwear? Yeah. What do you think about that? He was in his underwear. He was in his underwear. Mm-hmm. What, what do you what, I, what do you I think? I just got a funny feeling. He was killed and put there. Killed at home and put there. That's what I've always said. After you called the sheriff's office, you had an opportunity to approach the truck a little bit closer with the deputy. Yeah. Right? When you, and, and, was the door open or closed? Let me ask you that. The door was open. The door was standing open. Did you see anything inside the truck? Yes, I did. I seen a croaker sack mm-hmm. filled with blood. Did you look on the ground around the truck at all? Yeah, I looked down on the ground. There wasn't no tracks. Somebody, had, my tracks was the only one there when I backed off. Mm-hmm. There wasn't no tracks. Somebody had cleaned all the tracks up. Oh, did it appear that somebody had wiped it up, or? There wasn't no tracks there. There wasn't no tracks My feet was leaving tracks. Okay. Were tracks even there? No. Okay. Did you see any drag marks down towards the water? No, no drag marks. Okay. That's what I was looking for, tracks and drag marks. Did you see any blood? Just blood on that thing, none on the ground. None on the ground outside the truck. Mm -hmm. And with the amount of blood that you saw on the inside of the truck, did you suspect that there should be blood outside? There should have been blood outside if he was beat to death there. Okay. Now, and I know I asked you this before the tape statement, but for the purpose of this, did did you have an opportunity to accompany the sheriff's office back to Connie's house later on? 
Was it that day or the next day or subsequent days? No, it was uh, the same day, but not at Connie's house. Mm -hmm. It was at my house. Mm -hmm. They come and ask me if I'd go up and give a testament. Okay, you gave a statement? Give a statement. Do you remember if you ever gave a recorded one? Uh, you know, they had to record it. You know, that's a real good question because all the audio that I have comes from the investigations done decades later by subsequent investigators. Okay, well, you'd think. So you have to record it. Okay, well, I can't find well, it. Well, okay. they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, have you in there giving a testament if they did. Right, okay. And they had me up there three times, so. All right. As to the recordings from 1980, when this case would have been fresh in the minds of all involved, witnesses and suspects, I do have transcripts of some interviews done by Deputy Danny Tew, T-E-W, and he will henceforth be referred to as Deputy Dan as well as interviews done by State Attorney Investigator Kurt Siver. So they were recording interviews. I want to mention that while I found Kurt Siver's questioning of witnesses to be even-keeled and generally what I expect to hear during interrogations and interviews, Deputy Dan's, at times, felt problematic to me. It wasn't until I did some research on Deputy Dan and found that he had been fired the following year for misconduct related to lying on a search warrant application, did my feeling about his interviews become a reality? I will dig a bit deeper into that in future episodes. But the reason that I'm bringing this up now, early in the podcast, is because since I, as I did my research, had the benefit of hindsight and understanding this, I want you to have that too, so that as you listen, we can all look at this with an eye that's not only critical of what witnesses might be saying, but also with regard to how Deputy Dan approached these interrogations. I will also note that he flat out lied to witnesses in this case when he was discussing certain pieces of evidence. And I will recreate some of those interviews so that you will have the opportunity to see exactly what I'm talking about. But as I'm sure you understand, the problem then becomes if the person interviewing witnesses is an unreliable narrator, not only are his interviews of suspects, well, suspect, but his short summaries of statements that he allegedly took from witnesses are highly suspect as well, if they aren't fully tape-recorded, which many of them are not. When any of us summarize something, there is a danger of spinning it in a certain way by removing context. How I perceive something and you perceive something might be different. And so then what we're left with is a witness may have said a certain thing, but we don't know how the investigator asked a question and whether it was leading, what led up to it, and whether we believe that witness is credible based on everything that happened during that interview. In what we do have, it is glaringly apparent that Deputy Dan homed in like a pig on a truffle to certain pieces of evidence in this case, while missing some opportunities that years later, would be lost to subsequent investigators. And that makes their jobs harder. Did you ever go, did you go to Connie's house any of the day? At the, uh, a few days later. A few days later that you went there? I know you mentioned to me that no, you got to the next day. Okay, next day. Because uh, I went, I, I was thinking about them turtles mm -hmm. that I gave him. Uh-huh. And, uh, that's where I went over there and, uh, I went back there and turned the turtles loose. Uh -huh. He had them in a little cage. Okay. Because I know he wasn't going to eat them then. Yeah. 
Did you uh, look around any then? Did you sus you suspect you've been killed at home? I suspected that. Everybody let me go. Did you do anything yourself to try to determine whether anything happened there? Well, I just looked and see if I could see any blood or mm -hmm. any scuffles. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked all around the porch park and all out here in front right there mm -hmm. where he parked his truck and cars all the time. Did you see there wasn't no grass. Never there, seen nothing. There was no grass there? It was dirt? It was all dirt. Okay. Did they have an area where they sat around outside or anything like that? Uh, I know they do now. So I, out I in the front yard. Out in the front yard. Did you see anything out there? I never did go out there in that area. Did, do you know if had a, uh, a gun? Oh yeah, had guns. He had a shotgun, he had a rifle. I don't know, he had a shotgun and a rifle. There's some indication in reading reports that shotgun was missing after this. Uh, yeah, Connie said that uh, he took the shotgun when he went hunting. What do you think about that? No. <laughs> don't take no gun hunting. And why is that? It's against the law. It's against the law of going out and get hogs, but still you don't get it charged with But if you got a gun, right, if you got a gun, you yeah. get charged more, right? Yeah. Okay, every good poacher knows that. <laughs> yeah. You don't carry a gun in the woods, not when you're going in there getting them a hog. Do That's you, when you got these dogs. You can catch them alive and bring them out. And didn't take his dogs that night, according to Connie? Uh, come think about it, I didn't. All I heard is he carried a shotgun. Took a gun, okay. But no dogs. Alright. Um. Wouldn't run in the hunt with a shotgun and no dogs. Right. He wouldn't have carried a shotgun anyway. Right. But he certainly would have gone to, not gone without the dogs. No. What good is what good would it have been? Yeah. Well, what's he gonna do? Yeah. We're gonna be wandering around yeah. with a gun. Probably <laughs> okay. gonna find the hogs to shoot them anyway. Right. Understood. Um. Yeah. That that shit there. Did you think anything odd at the time when Connie called you? No. When you were at the when you were at the place of work, yeah, and she's called upset that hasn't showed up home. No, I, no, I mean, because he he always showed up for work. Okay. God, he he get there an hour before time to go to work. Because I had some people tell me why was she so upset that morning? Stay out hunting all the time. All night long. Okay. Sometimes. Why would she have been so upset that she morning? She had to know something. That, that's what I'm trying to get at. Why yeah. is she calling you to look for him? Yeah. That's what hit I, my mind later on. But uh, I didn't think of it at the time. I said, maybe he might have wrecked on the way to work. Right. So it hit my mind to go back through that way, too, mm -hmm. and see if he was still out hunting. Mm -hmm. And I figured something might have happened to him in the woods. Mm -hmm. So, no, his truck wasn't sitting there. He was sitting in another place. Would have wanted her to call the police if he didn't show up in the morning? No, because a lot of times he, uh, he'll stay out in the woods, uh, then he'll take off and go on to work. What if, going back home. What if he was being chased or something? Was there some type of standing rule that, uh, it, you know, in case he was being chased by the law and trying to hide and dodge him for poaching, he didn't want anybody calling the sheriff's office saying he hadn't showed up at the house that that would give him away. No, it could be something like that. Okay, too. but you you never heard him talk no, about anything no. like that. He's okay. never, it's never happened to him. Okay. In the next episode, we'll talk about the scene, what David Perry found below Horse Creek Bridge, and why most of Merritt's friends did not believe the story given to police by Merritt's wife, Connie Wheeler. Stay tuned.